Being an environmentalist doesn't necessarily limit your outdoor recreation pastimes to hiking, mountain biking, skiing, or rock climbing. Those of us who indulge in these so-called silent sports should remember that we share the natural world with folks whose connection to the outdoors also includes activities like hunting and fishing. Personally, I took up fly fishing a few years ago, and pardon the pun, I'm hooked. And on a trip to Wyoming in 2017, I met a young woman who has a passion for hunting. Jesse Johnson is an environmental activist who shared with me the story of a remarkable experience she had while hunting elk in the wild. Well, I'm, I'm an archery-only hunter, so I build my world around being able to take the month of September off to connect with the outdoors. And it's how I feed myself throughout the year, through the animals that I hunt, and it's also how I connect to the environment. And I work in conservation, so it's really where I draw inspiration from. And going out there, seeing that kind of country is what brings me back and gives me the kind of get up and go to face the world we're looking at right now. The story I told is about this September and it was a new experience for me and it was a somewhat heartbreaking experience for me. I'm a relatively new hunter. I've only been hunting for six or seven years now and I had an experience. This is, this is an experience, I, I guess I should say, that every hunter eventually has. And I had it this year. I, I always sort of start this with a quote because it's something that is like really deeply in my psyche, but the quote is, the shadow that walks behind us is four-legged. And it's a quote that's been bouncing around my brain because for me it represents this responsibility and this obligation to do right by the animals and the environment that we're hunting in, to make sure that it's respectful and to make sure that we are following every ethic at every point that we can. Along with the passion for the outdoors must also come an understanding of the balance between life and death. As a bow hunter, Jesse Johnson knows firsthand the responsibilities and obligations that go along with being a full participant in the natural world. Though she hunts for sport, the elk she kills for food brings her closer to the wilderness she aims to protect. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. This story details a vivid description of an actual elk hunt. Though not overly graphic, sensitive listeners should be advised. I spent 24 days out hunting this September, and I went out with my hunting partner, and 
we had a very quiet morning. So when you're elk hunting, and I'm in the Wind River Mountains of Wyoming, and often it's like, you know, you go out and you can either hear them or you don't. And the elk bugles that come across in the morning are just this spectacular sound. And it was a very quiet morning. And we kind of like looked at each other and we're deciding whether we're just going to sort of throw in the towel and hike home or uh, keep going. We're about four miles back, so we're pretty far in. And we came around this corner and walked into something that I think every hunter dreams about but doesn't often get to experience. And it was a what we called a bugle fest. It was where uh, six herds of elk had accidentally all run together. And so there were, you know, hundreds of cows and then the bulls were trying to sort out which cows were part of their herd. And it was just like an echo of bugling elk. And it was this beautiful morning. It was probably like nine o'clock, 9.30 when we walked into this. And it was just kind of, I mean, we just sat there slack jawed for a little while and listened because it was just unbelievable the kind of sound. Eventually, we were able to call in a very nice herd bull. He was this beautiful animal that came in, and I remember I was sitting under a tree, and my hunting partner was on the other side of the tree, so we were a little bit separated, but still, you know, pretty close to each other. And we have this agreement, you know, I I won't take a shot past 30 yards. So if an animal's further than 30 yards from me, I won't even draw my bow. And, and I do that because that's, that's my comfort zone. I practice every day with a bow, and I just, that's, my, that's where I'm comfortable and where I know I'm ethical. Um, my hunting partner's been hunting a lot longer than I have, and he's a little, his, his range is a little further than mine. So this elk came in, and he came in right at the 40-yard mark, so I was waiting for my hunting partner to draw his bow, and I kept looking and going, oh, well, okay. I, mean, I don't know why he's not, but I'll, you know, I'll wait, and this, he came in and this animal was just like, he was hit by the sunlight and he was backlit and you could kind of see like just, he was just a magnificent creature. And I remember sitting there and I remember thinking like, oh my God, you are so beautiful. Oh my God, you are so beautiful. And that was like this weird like mantra that was coming through my head, which I know sounds very strange if you haven't hunted before. It's a very weird thought to be having before you draw your bow. <laughs> This animal then turned and came directly towards us, which is sort of odd for an elk to do. And he came and stood face on at 10 yards and he opened his mouth and bugled. And it was a kind of sound that like resonates through your whole body. You know, it's cold enough, you watch the steam come out of his mouth. And when elk bugle, their eyes close or they flutter closed. And my hunting partner has still not drawn his bow, so I drew mine. And as soon as I got into full draw, He'd finished his bugle and his eyes came a little like wider open and I think he just saw that last little movement. And it was enough to spook him, so he turned broadside, but it wasn't enough to let him know that it was a human. He had just seen a little bit of movement. And he stayed there staring directly like sort of where I was at, unaware that I was there. And I think that's kudos to being in a good place and not moving. You know, they're very motion sight animals. And I had this moment of like this ability to take time and breathe and aim and really, really think through what I was doing. And I let the arrow fly and I watch it fly. I, I couldn't have 
we, I, I did what we would call a bullseye shot. Like, I couldn't have placed it somewhere better. And he didn't know he'd been shot. He didn't spook, he didn't run, he didn't jump. And he stood there and he kept looking and then he kind of moved and walked away a little bit and stood there for another 15 minutes, which is normal for an arrow. And, and he had no adrenaline in him, which was very odd. And eventually, another cow elk came down and he kind of stumbled and weaved. He was very clearly dying, just out of view. And I waited another half hour, which that half hour mark is, is sort of a thing in hunting where it doesn't matter how good you think your shot is, you want to wait because in case you were wrong, you don't want to come up and, it's called bumping an animal. You don't you want to spook him out of a place. You want to give him a peaceful place to die. You want to let him die, you know, as he will rather than, you know, showing human presence. And so I waited the 30 minutes and, um, you know, my hunting partner at that point, like, looked around the tree and he said, that was a great shot. Like, that's a very dead elk. You should be feeling really good. And so I was, I was feeling really hopeful and we walked around this corner that this elk had gone around and I was just expecting to look out across this expanse. I was on this beautiful side hill with, you know, it was like an opening of a little meadow and the Wind River Mountains were in the background. It was just unbelievable country and I expected to walk around this, uh, this rock to see this animal and he wasn't there. a little further and so I walked a little further and an hour passed and two hours passed and the day passed and by that point I had started like grid searching and just you know taking a line and walking all the way up and down it for 500 yards around this elk looking and looking and looking and looking and panicked couldn't find him um, ended up hiking out that night after dark, and again, it's a four mile hike, so I wasn't getting in, and it was another hour and a half drive to where it was, so went home, came, got up way before the sun, got there, so I was like where I'd shot the elk the next day at first light, and just proceeded to look, and, and at this point, by the end of the day before, I'd punched my tag. Like, you know, you get, you, you get a tag when you go hunting, and it means that you can take one animal, and I knew, whether I had injured him or killed him, this elk was not going to make it through. And so I punched that tag and I, you know, it was a matter of like, now I need to find him. And so I spent the next three days after that just tearing that hillside apart and having, I never, I, I can't explain the kind of emotions I went through because I think I'm still processing them. Knowing that I had a good shot, I never once doubted that I'd killed this animal. And that was that was something that like was really notable to me, but on that on that third day, we were still down looking for him. And you know, there's elk everywhere in these woods still. They're bugling. It's still hunting season, and we ran into a hunter that was hunting. And uh, I just had been like, hey, if you find if you find this animal, like I'm looking for it, please let me know. And he just looked at me. He's like, well, I'm gonna help you look for it. And you know, there's already two of us looking. And this hunter put down his bow and said, all right, like. He knew what it felt like, you know, everybody's done that and I think we don't talk about it enough and he helped us look for that whole day which was just, it was unbelievably kind, it was an amount of camaraderie that I think people don't know exists in the hunting world 
and it was really indicative of like that we need to to put a better face on on who we think are hunters we didn't find it that day either and by that point I was blister ridden and exhausted and sad and heartbroken and so that end of that fourth day we I said I don't know that I'm gonna find this elk until maybe I can come back when the birds have started circling so I took the day off and my hunting partner went back up to keep hunting he hadn't filled his tag yet and that hunter that we'd run into found it that day and my hunting partner came back to his truck and there was a note on the truck that said hey we got your elk and we subtly flagged it here's a general area of where it is so I got out before the sun the next morning and hiked in to find that elk and I was in there with my hunting partner who's who had actually shot an elk the day before so I was in there both to help him carry out his elk and hopefully find mine and I can't tell you the kind of angst and emotion and responsibility that was on my shoulders like I had to find out what happened to this animal and where he had gone and when I walked up on him he was laying in this sort of grove of trees with the sunlight kind of coming down and just I would say kissing the tops of the antlers and he was peaceful and untouched and I have never experienced what walking up on that felt like because I was on my knees and weeping and some of it in relief because I looked and you know the shot was good and some of it was just in the grief of like I I hunt for food you know I'm never going to kill something I'm not going to eat and it was the fifth day and the meat was clearly spoiled on him and having this kind of like conflicting like I've been looking for him and looking for him and couldn't find him and now that I did what do I do because the meat is gone and how do I value this life now how do I show respect to this life because the meat was gone and I really warred with myself about what to do and I I came to the conclusion that I was going to take his antlers and take the ivories and these are often what people take as mementos from their hunt usually it's out with the rest of the meat but um, I really had a had a tough time struggling with how how I was going to like feel about this and and hiking out I came to the conclusion that this can be a learning point and a story and what I needed was a, a memento and a totem from this experience and that's what those antlers will be because they're he was a big elk and these are antlers that are going to hang on my wall and somebody's going to ask me did you shoot that elk and I'm going to have to tell him this story and I'm going to have to tell it with humility and respect and the kind of feeling that I think only transfers when you have spent that much time around the wildlife and so making sure that that voice um, you know I often say that we as humans forget we're animals and we are the only animals that are capable of speaking up for others is what drew me into conservation. It's what connected me to the landscape and it's what connected me to feeling like an animal. Um, 
And I think when you feel part of that tribe, you tend to protect it a little harsher and a little more viscerally. Um, but I just, I hope that this is a lesson and I hope that the ability to talk about experiences like this helps open the doors to more discussions around hunting because I know that we have a momentous hill to climb as far as reputation goes and we just aren't talking about the right things. Well, let's talk about it a bit right now. I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to understand and fully appreciate your relationship with hunting and conservation. Because mm-hmm. you know, some people might think that that's contradictory. Mm-hmm. You know, that to, to um, hunt, to harvest, to kill animals, but at the same time have a reverence and appreciation for nature mm-hmm. and the natural environment. How do you reconcile those two? I think... It's, it's a question I think we all struggle with. I think it goes back to food and knowing, you know, it's, it's a little more prehistoric of a human thing. And, you know, we were all hunters at some point. For me, knowing where my food comes from is really important and connecting with the landscape and realizing that I, my sustenance depends on the healthiness of this ecosystem is really sort of what sort of connected A to B, but there's also, I think, that feeling of, it's a very odd, it's very, it's a dichotomy, it's a very odd split, because it is, I would, um, I've built my life, I work for a conservation group, a sportswomen's conservation group called Artemis, and that's, that's been my life, and, and then to go, and I know it sounds weird, we go protect the animals and then we hunt them, but I think some of it is, is tying into the human history, into the heritage, into the feeling of, coming back to your roots and having sustainable food. I think knowing where your food comes from and knowing the responsibility, because I don't care if you're vegetarian or vegan or just you know eat meat from a grocery store, we have an impact on the earth. We displace animals for agriculture. We you know don't treat animals correctly in the livestock in- industry. Like We have this big problem around mass production of food. And when you hunt, you are right up close with it. You see it, and it is very much in your face about your impact on this earth. And it is. It's the responsibility of taking a life and knowing you're taking a life. And it's something that goes with you forever. But it is also something where I think we're a little more in touch with what's going on uh, because of that. Well, so. I, would, I would imagine then that it, it's a much more holistic approach to the inevitability of killing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the inevitability of consuming, whether it is animals or natural resources, you know, even water. I mean, mm-hmm. just just being able to make sure that you're not consuming more than you actually need, and as and and I just find it very interesting that you know you, you just said a moment ago that you protect and preserve animals so that you can go out and kill them. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> now that might sound like a contradiction in terms, but I mean, but as long as you are doing it sustainably. Yeah, I think sustainably is is really the thing. And, and, you know, our wildlife managers, you can't just go out and kill animals. Like, you you apply for tags or you pay into the system, and the license fees helps pays for the conservation work that state agencies do. And I think a big part of it is the connection that happens and the deep care and responsibility and obligation that comes from the privilege of hunting because it is a privilege, and we're lucky that we're, I, you know, I, I live here in Wyoming, half my state is public lands, 
and I have an incredible amount of access. I'm an incredibly lucky hunter, I know that. And it's not just experiences for myself. Like, I don't go and do it because I want to keep hunting him. If you told me that I would, you know, save the earth, all I would have to do is hang up my bow, absolutely. I do it because I spend 24 days in September seeing the sunrise and the sunset. I see it because some of those days I get to see a black bear go running through. Some of those days I get to hear birdsong or see ermine or weasels. Or I mean, you, you have these experiences that it takes being outside 24-7 to really have, and, and that's the precious part about it. That's the story of the hunt. It's, I had a really unfortunate, horrible thing happen with shooting this elk and not being able to find him. But the experiences I had this September have tenfold inspired me to go back and fight tooth and nail to make sure that the generations to come have that same ability to go out and make that same mistake or that same, have that, and it wasn't even a mistake to make that same experience happen again and hopefully they find theirs um, but I, I think a big part of this is this these places are, are there for us to test our metal and to test our ethics you know and and to see really what you're made of out there and who you are because how you deal with those really difficult situations that's only on you and so you, you and the bears can see it <laughs> So what do you want people to know most that they might not be aware of when it comes to hunting? I mean, especially people who assume that, quite frankly, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they have made a conscious decision that, that taking life in this way is just unconscionable to them. What's your, what's your response to that? My response to that is, a, I think, a lot of empathy. I get it. You know, we, as hunters, have historically not been great at talking about what hunting really is and it's been um, I think malaligned with being ego driven and it's a horrible phrase but like the whack em and stack em kind of like mentality and I am that turns my stomach like that I get it if that's all they're seeing then yeah I get it and I guess what I would say is that I'm really thankful that there's people that care enough to not be okay with that and I'd rather disagree with about how we feel about hunting and have those people that care so deeply that still disagree with me than to just like live in a place where people are all don't care at all. So, so I think a place of empathy is where we need to come from. And I think the hunting community is waking up to that and understanding that. We know that we have a responsibility to be very purposeful in how we talk about hunting. We live in a culture that's not necessarily comfortable with death. And I think that puts hunting under a microscope because it's, you know, we are directly related to death. We have hunt, as hunters, have not responded well to being under that microscope. We haven't lived up to it and we haven't behaved in that sense. And, and I think it's time to come back to our roots and back to being one of the animals rather than somebody who is just a steward of the animals. I think we need to tie that back together because it's come unraveled. What is it that you hope to do personally? What, what is your, your greatest aspiration when it comes to both your career and your passion for hunting? If I can help move the definition of hunting in the average person's mind into a little bit more 
of a, a holistic place, a place of like where I see hunting. And in that enact people to reach out and connect with the natural world a little bit more and maybe reach voices that have historically been very turned off to hunting, then I think I've done, that would be my greatest aspiration. I would like to have that kind of discussion going on when we're talking about conservation because it's we, we look at things in silos like we have to save the mule deer or we have to save the sage grouse or we have to save public lands or it's clean water or it's clean air we don't look at it as an ecosystem we're like yeah saving one of these things is great but if the rest are still in danger this that's not helpful we're not looking at this as a as a circle we're looking at it as you know little square pegs <laughs> And we, in the conservation community, have done the same things where we talk about, well, they're sportsmen and we're, you know, bikers and we over here just focus on birds. And it's a very, like, narrow-minded view on conservation. And until we start reaching out across lines and until we in the hunting community are ready to receive that, um, I think we're just going to still be working in circles. Jesse, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you. I really appreciate being here. We are filled with the longing for the wild. There are a few culturally sanctioned antidotes for this yearning. We are taught to feel shame for such a desire. We grow our hair long and used it to hide our feelings. But the shadow of the wild woman still lurks behind us during our days and in our nights. No matter where we are, the shadow that trots behind us is definitely four-footed. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype. Jesse Johnson is the co-founder of Artemis Sportswomen and the Public Lands Coordinator at the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. You can learn more about environmental conservation through hunting and other outdoor activities at wyomingwildlifefederation.org. For the Joy Chip Project, this is James Edward Mills. Our theme music is provided by Jake Shimobukuro. Additional melodies by Ben Winward and Oren Soar were provided by Artlist. The Joy Chip Project is made possible thanks to the support of the Next 100 Coalition, a diverse group of environmental activists working towards equity and inclusion in the management of our public lands through the next century and beyond. Learn more about its members and current initiatives at next100coalition.org. Thanks for listening. But as always, I want to hear from you. So please, drop me a note with your questions, comments, and criticisms to info at joychairproject.com. Or better yet, subscribe to the feed on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcast platforms can be found. There you can leave a message or write a review. But most of all, don't forget to tell your friends. Now, 
go be joyful. And until next time, take care.